You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 15th of March 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show... It is clear that this can now only be described as a terrorist attack. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern reacting there to the massacre at two mosques in Christchurch. My guests Ben Ryland, Carlotta Ribello and Chiara Ramella will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including a prominent Italian politician of today makes some curious remarks about a prominent Italian politician of about 80 years ago, what seems to be the biggest worldwide school climate strike yet, and a new editor for people and the bizarre durability of gossip magazines. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle's Ben Ryland, Carlotta Ribello and Chiara Ramella. Welcome all. Uh, and we will start tonight in Christchurch. 49 people are now confirmed dead and at least 48 injured in attacks on two mosques in the city. An Australian man in his late 20s has been arrested and charged with murder. Three other people have also been detained, one subsequently released. At least two explosive devices were disabled by police. It is by far the worst violent crime committed in New Zealand's modern history. The Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern described it, doubtless correctly, as a terrorist attack. It is clear that this can now only be described as a terrorist attack. From what we know, it does appear to have been well planned. Two explosive devices attached to suspects' vehicles have now been found and they have been disarmed. There are currently four individuals who have been apprehended, but three are connected to this attack who are currently in custody. One of which has publicly stated that they were Australian born. These are people who I would describe as having extremist views that have absolutely no place in New Zealand and in fact have no place in the world. Jacinda Ardern, Prime Minister of New Zealand, speaking earlier. Um, This is obviously an extremely difficult subject to discuss uh, beyond the obvious horror at it. Um, And the media, I think we've seen Carlotta trying to get to grips with this today in that, as the Prime Minister there said, there does appear to have been a manifesto posted by the alleged shooter. Um, I don't really want to discuss the contents of it because his ideas could not interest me less and I don't really see why they should interest anybody else. But how should a newspaper deal with this? Do you actually publish the manifesto that presumably anybody who wants to look at can look up anyway? Do you say the suspect's name out loud? It is a tricky one. It is a tricky one, but I do think that with uh, terrorist attacks like this one and uh, unfortunately many others that we've seen before um, in other countries and cities, uh, the the people that commit these horrific crimes, most of the reason they do it, apart from hatred, is the publicity and uh, this idea of spreading their 
ideology, um, the wrong beliefs that they have, um, and this hatred. Uh, so I do not think that the media gains anything by uh, at all publishing the manifesto. And we saw the case of uh, a publication here in the UK that did publish it, and immediately everyone um, uh, piled on them. And you had advertisers saying, well, my ad is showing up on the page where this manifesto is showing up. I don't want to read it. I don't want to be associated um, with with this sort of content. Um, and as, as you say, Andrew, anyone that for whatever reason wants to look it up will be able to find it. So there's no reason that the media should make it easier to be accessible or simply that you're browsing uh, someone a publication's page and you stumble upon it. Um, I don't think we have anything to gain from it. Chiara? I think it's very tricky because also uh, one of the reasons that often spurs on people who do carry out these t- types of attack is a sense that their own opinions are marginalised and they're not being heard. And they construe this whole dialogue around the idea of there not being enough freedom of speech. So it's I completely agree with Carlotta in that I, I do think that you should deprive this of publicity. But at the same time, you do, I think, need to build a conversation that allows for these views to be considered and discredited in the public domain at the same time for it for it not to be for to, for it to be silenced and condemned uh, but after it's discussed it openly if that makes sense just to follow that up Chiara, I, I, my concern about you know pretend for for say media outlets pretending the manifesto doesn't exist um is that then the manifesto or whatever other excuses advance then does acquire a life of its own if it's not analysed and discussed and put into context, ideally, obviously, by people who actually know what they're talking about rather than attempting to sensationalise it for clicks, which is what I think um, Carlotta was referring to earlier. Um Ben, there have been responses, aghast responses from politicians around the world, most correctly so, and I think most of whom described it uh, very quickly and very correctly as a terrorist attack. Um, With great reluctance, um, as the Australians on this panel, we should, I think, address the interjection of the Australian senator and idiot Fraser Anning, which did go uh, colossally globally viral today. Again, I don't really want to repeat um, his inane interjections uh, terribly much either. Uh, But I do think we should do our little bit uh, to try and contextualise Fraser Anning's place in public life. Yeah, I share your sentiments there, Andrew. I prefer not... In fact, when I was preparing to come on this programme this evening, I had already decided earlier in the day that he's not relevant. Someone who received 19 votes, 19 electoral votes, to get into the Senate is not relevant to a discussion on any media programme. But unfortunately... Fraser Anning, like many people on his side of politics, whatever side you want to describe that as, is a provocateur. He's aiming to stir the pot. He's not doing it particularly well, but in this case, he has posted a statement that has gone viral. Um, And it's not worth discussing anything that's in it because people can look it up quite easily or they can probably guess exactly what he's he's talking about. Or, Or they can do literally anything else which would be a more productive use of their time. Precisely. But it's important to note that Fraser Anning is a a very fringe 
individual in Australian politics. He is in the Australian Senate through a technical glitch only. He received 19 votes, one, nine, that is. So he, One of which you have to assume is his own. So presumably. That's, so that's, that's 18. <laughs> presumably, yes. So he doesn't represent the views of, of Australians. He's already been knocked down by the Prime Minister. He's been knocked down by the Home Secretary here in the United Kingdom as well. Uh, but unfortunately, just going back to what you were saying earlier, I do think it is a little bit late to to not be talking about anything that's in that manifesto or anything that drove these these attackers to do what they did because unfortunately it has been done now and if you look if you look at the reasons that they have cited behind these these brutal actions and um Unfortunately, they've been inspired by some voices that are not merely on the fringes anymore. In recent years, we have seen certain people with certain beliefs venture out of the fringes of of the media and into what we might call the alarmingly more mainstreamed media. We had... uh, I I know you can't... it's important to note, you cannot draw direct lines between what someone says over in the United States or what someone says here in the UK and what these people did in New Zealand. You, direct lines are very difficult to draw, but it has to be stated that we have now a president of the United States who got in to his position of power and launched his candidacy as, as a potential president by saying that there were rapists and murderers coming in from Mexico. He's been dog-whistling about all of these caravans that are coming in with masses I, of migrants coming to the nation. I, and these attackers were talking about New Zealand being one of the final places on the planet that's simply not safe from masses of immigration. It's incredibly... It's really alarming that that sort of thing is now being mainstreamed by certain individuals. With Trump, it's not so much a dog whistle as an air horn. Um, we will look more at this on tonight's Daily at 2200. But just as a final thought on this, Kiara, and this, I do, I do wonder, might be the, the resonance of this this crime beyond the crime itself, is that should this be a watershed for social media platforms? Because the the alleged killer not merely appears to have been radicalised, at least partly, by social media platforms. He broadcast the massacre live uh, on social media. Are we nearing the point, and this is... This is certainly where I've got to, I think, that social media platforms are publishers and they should be held accountable for what appears under their masthead, the same as any magazine or newspaper. Am I going overboard there? No, I I agree. And I think that moment should have been reached before this even. I think another thing that's very interesting to think about in this context is that an awful lot of far-right extremist groups use a kind of rhetoric that um, sometimes people understand as joking in a very extreme way and sometimes these extremists are not necessarily identified because the language that's used on these groups is so sarcastic and over the top all the time. And there you enter a, a situation where the social media platforms need to take responsibility in policing these groups as well. Okay, well, let's move on now. Uh, As I said, there will be more on this on tonight's Daily at 2200. Now, very, very early in the list of basic don'ts of political discourse, like about Rule 3 or something, is don't try and argue that the fascists who led Europe to destruction in the 1930s and 1940s had redeeming features. You would think that someone who had risen to become the actual president of the European Parliament might have gotten their head around that one, but apparently not. Antonio Tajani, for it is he, has spent the last 24 hours 
Hours backpedalling furiously after remarking to an Italian radio station that he had some time for the earlier work of Benito Mussolini. While he didn't actually say made the trains run on time, he went pretty close, lauding the bridges, roads and stadiums built during the fascist period. Carlotta, even if you think this at some level... Why would you say it out loud? I have no idea. I would <laughs> never dare to say anything like that out loud. Because I, first, because I don't think uh, and, and agree uh, with with those comments. But as a politician especially the president of the European Parliament, how can you not see that this is not going to be... I mean, there's, there's, there's no way this is going to sound good. No, no. <laughs> Regardless of what explanation, justification, uh, context, it doesn't matter. I mean, even if someone... even. If you are the president of the European Parliament and you're in an interview and someone asks you, OK, you have to say one good thing about Mussolini, you surely will try to talk around that question and not answer it. So yeah, voluntarily I, 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 like, I like giving, giving this information, um, I really don't get it. And every time we have a politician in any country in the world that tries to, you know, talk about one good thing or, oh, it wasn't that bad, referring to um, a past dictator, it never ends up well. So um, I really don't know why you would say it. Uh, Chiara, is this kind of equivocating about Mussolini a common thing in Italy. I mean, it, it's not unheard of. Silvio Berlusconi uh, has some amount of form for this. Is, is there a lot of that, you know, people who, when you discuss Mussolini with them, will say, well, a bit from column A, a bit from column B? Well, I, it's not a recent thing, and we need to look at it historically. Um, the, the sentences that Tajani pronounced are yet another one of the cliches that the kind of philo-fascists we often, will often refer to. He declared himself as an anti-fascist, and he probably is. I, he says he is. Um, but the history of the evolution of what happened to the fascist party in Italy then led into the formation of other parties that, that have trickled down through history into parties that do still exist now and there are discussions discussions that have raged over the last few years as to how strict the rules against uh, apology of fascism should be still right now if you go to Predapio where the tomb of, fasc- of, of Mussolini is there are still heaps of shops selling fascist memorabilia there are restaurants around the peninsula that still have um, Mussolini memorabilia around and there are there is a discussion as to whether that should be sanctioned or not I think it's interesting at this point of time because we have to remember that we do have a right-wing government a partly right-wing government at mm-hmm. the head at the moment and certain attitudes that have been taken by this government in being more lenient towards perhaps the neo-fascists compared to, you know, for example, Salvini said that um, evicting uh, Casa Pound, who are a, a neo-fascist group from uh, illegally occupying a building in Rome, was not his priority. Uh, but obviously he's evicting refugees and migrants from other places around the peninsula. Um if you look at all of this within this context, you just do not go to a place where you're even potentially making a remark that could remind people of, of the kind of dialogue that goes around fascist apologism. Uh, ben, he has apologised. Uh, does that satisfactorily answer the calls for his resignation? Is this basically a resigning issue? I mean, to draw the most obvious and crass parallel, a, a German politician in his position who'd made similar remarks about Germany's dictator of the period, I mean, that, that would be it. 
You 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 would be currently miserably loading your possessions into a cardboard box. Absolutely, and I think context is everything when you when you're approaching issues like this or pretty much any issue. But as Kiara uh, so eloquently points out, there is a very different and very complex and difficult context surrounding the issue of Mussolini in in Italy. And we we have to accept that there there are actually a lot of people who do feel quite differently about the legacy of Mussolini and simply shutting that idea down and 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 stopping it from from being discussed is not going to solve anything. If anything it will make it even worse. And as with most things, education is key and clearly there is a, a deep misunderstanding amongst many people as to what Mussolini actually did and what his actions led to. Um, so there clearly needs to be more attention paid to that. Uh, but it, on one hand, it is, it is okay to say, to state facts and say that someone did something that resulted in something positive, no matter how evil they might be. I went on a tour of the film studios outside of Rome, uh, Cinecittà, uh, which is where all the, uh, most of the Italian classic films ha- have been made. And during that tour, they will, they will point out Mussolini built this. Mussolini built this. This was this was left over by Mussolini. So on and so on and so on. And it's impossible to walk away from that tour and not feel as if, oh goodness, Mussolini actually built a large degree of what we now know as Italian classic cinema. That doesn't necessarily equate to you thinking that Mussolini was actually partly okay. It just adds to the complexities of what terrible people from throughout history actually did. Most terrible people didn't only do terrible things. Okay. Well, before we take a short break, a reminder that tomorrow's edition of the foreign desk is the third in our series on how countries confront difficult aspects of their history you can listen to that live at midday london time or you can download it of course anytime you like after that you are listening to midori house with me andrew muller ben ryland and chiara ramella coming up next i'm i'm not quite sure this alice cooper reference lands but let's give it a crack schools out against summer rome boasts an ancient specialization in restoring the masterpieces of the past But thanks to innovative technology, the works of Rome's art restorers is also very current. Monocle Films travel to the Eternal City to visit restoration studio Merlini Storti. The founders of the all-women team were trained by the former chief restorer at Vatican Museum's Maurizio De Luca. We can understand how restoration has always been present and how from the historical background, schools of restoration were founders that have formed a generation of restorers who currently are considered the best in the world. The Art of Restoration, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Miller. See, what I was doing there was the Alice Cooper song was called Schools Out for Summer, and now that was the Schools Out Against Summer. Summer, therefore, standing in for the hideous climate nightmare that they're protesting. It, it didn't quite come off. I thought it was worth a try. Anyway, still with me are Ben Ryland and Chiara Ramella. And students around the world have walked out of class today, or depending where you're listening in the world, yesterday or later on today. Uh, Friday is the key word. It's the latest in a series of such walkouts aimed at drawing attention to the fact 
that this generation would prefer it if the planet they are to inherit is still broadly habitable by the time they reach adulthood. Today's strike seems to be the biggest yet, however, with reported actions in more than a hundred countries, and comes a day after Greta Thunberg, the Swedish 16-year-old credited with launching the movement, was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by three Norwegian MPs. Um, on balance, I don't think I have a particular problem with this. These kids seem, you know, engaged and excited and enthused about an issue which is clearly going to be important to all of us, but especially to them. Um, Chiara, first of all, are you broadly for this or are you thinking they should all be back indoors paying attention to their teachers? Well, going back to what we were just talking about just then, I don't think anybody in their right mind could generally say they're against this. Could they? It's a oh, People are. People are. Um, actually, and, and Ben, I'm, I'm kind of amused by some of the responses of politicians. I, I, I sympathise with ministers for education around the world who, whatever they actually think, kind of have to say we can't really have, you know, large-scale truancy. But quite surprising, uh, the UK's Environment Secretary, Michael Gove, uh, has been broadly in agreement and indeed approval. Well, anything goes in Brexit Britain, so I guess we just have to uh, get used to that. Um, I do feel for the education minister in Australia, however, having to serve uh, under a prime minister who once famously brought in a lump of coal to the Australian parliament and held it up and said, look, it's nothing to be afraid of. Uh, is, is, so, there any, is, is there any way they can make it a senator from Queensland? <laughs> um, uh, inside joke there. Uh, so I, I do have to fear that there are actually a lot of people out there who might be looking at this and thinking, Oh, aren't they silly? Aren't they cute? These students thinking they're actually making a difference. But clearly, it's good that at least someone cares about the imminent end of the world. Um, it's, it's, I was looking at some figures from published by The Conversation, the website in Australia, um, only this week, in fact. And it is clear that most young Australians are actually much more, uh, as they state here, much more connected, educated and informed than previous generations. Uh, they're, however, more likely to have higher debt and less economic independence. That's unfortunate. But uh, it goes on to explain that climate change remains a key concern for young people. It's one of the top three issues identified for young people. Uh, that was back in the 2016 election. So it's not surprising that, that students would want to take this action. Um, and I think ultimately it, it has to be good. You've got to draw more attention to it and draw more action to it. And look, Australia is having an election in May and we already know that despite the best wishes of the current government, climate change is a key concern. It played a very large role in, in the government losing uh, the seat of Wentworth not too long ago to Karen Phelps. It was That was a safe seat since the beginning of Australian politics and all of a sudden now it was lost to an, an independent who ran uh, on, on action for climate change. So things are changing. The young people know that. The old people just haven't got it yet. Uh, Kiara, the obvious thing counting against these kids in terms of being a political force is that they can't by and large vote. Uh, although if they're late high school students, they're not far off. A lot of them will be looking at their, their, their first electoral vote within the next few years. Um, that being the case, do do you think politicians are going to pay attention to them? or, or Because this is the big problem with climate change, I think, as an issue in that 
the reality of democratic politics is that it does encourage politicians to think short term rather than long term. Nobody in government now is going to get the credit 50 years from now. Well, frankly, I just have a doubt instilled in me by years and years and years of demonstration going that politicians tend not to care about demonstrations broadly. Um, but I do think that the what these demonstrations do and, I, and the reason why they work specifically when they are done by younger people is that the rest of the people need to agree with them. The older people need to start agreeing with them. And it's only when, as a broader public, people start aligning themselves with the politicians that do care about the issues, that the the discourse will dramatically change. See, this is where I'm reminded of a conversation I had many years ago in Belgrade with one of the people who ran the revolution against Slobodan Milosevic, and I was asking him about the degree to which Oppor, the movement that he'd helped oversee, was largely a student-led movement, and he said, oh, that was entirely deliberate on our part. And I said, what do you mean? He said, who brings new ideas into the home? Who brings new music? new technology, new TV shows, the kids. And he said, that that's how we made this mainstream. Well, absolutely. It's a, it's the the counterculture movement, isn't it? Uh, it's, it feels like that all over again, except I don't know whether in retrospect it feels like the counterculture movement uh, happened faster than it did, but right now it does feel like it's moving very, very slowly. We've been talking about climate change for my entire life. Uh, it almost feels as if that's true. And still, we don't seem to be any legislatively closer to making an actual real difference. And the headlines about this keep getting scarier and scarier. Um, I hope I hope that the current setbacks that we've seen uh, at, at, in the United States and recently in Australia, although that seems to be changing slowly, are temporary setbacks. But certainly in the case of the US, it doesn't feel that way. Okay, well, finally tonight, the glossy celebrity journal People has a new editor. There's always someone worse off. Jess Cagle is stepping down after five years at the helm and will be replaced by deputy editor Dan Wakeford. Both of them said all the stuff that people generally say at such moments. Chiara, are you a regular reader or subscriber to People magazine? Sadly not. Imagine my surprise. (laughs) No, I do have an incredible amount of guilty pleasures, um, but gossip magazines are not one of them. Although I enjoy their existence, I think they have a place in the publishing landscape and they have a place in people's lives. And I think they serve the same purpose that true crime series do. I'm a big, big fan, and let me go highbrow here, of uh, Evelyn Moore's Vile Bodies, which is all about kind of the art of gossip, newspaper printing, and and, and there's something about the hunger that people have um, in consuming this kind of media that I think... To a certain extent, as long as it's not harmful to the people who are depicted in magazine and the people depicted in magazine remain broadly consensual to to the whole experience, um, should be indulged. Um, Ben, (laughs) that does partially answer possibly the question I'm about to ask you, which is it surprising that selling gossip in print is still a viable business model? People magazine is huge. Still, it's the eighth biggest selling title in the United States by some guesses. It's enormous. They have very good branding. Uh, I just want to point out that that Chiara's uh, response there was very, very quaint, uh, especially the part about broadly consensual coverage in in the magazines. (laughs) It really just goes against the entire concept 
concept of, of gossip. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite pastimes when I go to any country really in the world is to have a look at the, the, the gossip magazine section. Uh, I was in New York recently and I, I had to pick up a copy of People magazine and I flicked through it furiously. The last time I read that magazine was actually the Australian version, which has to be called Who magazine because the title People was already taken. Don't Google that at work. Um, and uh, you've got to... <laughs> You've got to hand it to them. They are such good storytellers. I mean, look, we have to take it with, well, a good shake of salt, actually, because you know that a large portion of this is not actually true. And also, the no. science behind it, <laughs> the science behind it is absolutely fascinating. There's a brilliant long read all about this that was done by, I believe it was the, the New York Times. It could have been the New Yorker. Forgive me, New York media. But um, uh, they spoke about how, uh, especially with you at the National Enquirer, there are certain things that sell for some reason and certain things that don't. For instance, Jennifer Aniston always sells. She doesn't do a hell of a lot in the public eye, but she always sells. Jennifer Lopez, a lot more active if you ask me, does not sell on the cover of magazines. See, doesn't I, sell. I, I will confess that when when I on my returns home to our native country, Ben, I do quite enjoy reading the Australian celebrity press because it, there's a certain uh, Zen detachment now. Because I because the thing is, if you live in Britain, even if I'm not interested in any of this stuff, and I'm really not, you can't help but pick things up. Whereas if I go home and read the Australian celebrities, I, I genuinely have not got the least idea who no. any of these people are. No, and and, and it, it, <laughs> there's actually something quite quite joyous about reading it. It's, it's, it's like reading little fairy tales. It's, 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 <laughs> these, these sort of strange, incredible fictional characters. It's a, it's a strange byproduct of online gossip. It has really somewhat killed the notion of the localised celebrity. You've really only got those reality TV stars, the Big Brother contestants and so on, who are the local versions of, of the celebrities. The, the rest have really started to die away a lot. And look, uh, to answer your original question, Andrew, I, I think it is surprising that we have the same number of of gossip magazines in print. Um, I don't know who those people are that are actually continuing to buy it, but I am somewhat thankful to them. I'm glad they are still putting a lot of faith in the print product when it comes to gossip, despite there not actually being a hell of a lot of value in it. See, I think there's also a publishing point to be made about the art, if you will allow me to term, of the paparazzo. We did a story about this in Monocle magazine not that long ago, um, last September's issue, actually. And being a paparazzo is quite hard work. And in the current kind of media climate where you have lots of celebrities taking their own shots and publishing them on Instagram, uh, they have a lot of competition. But it's not that easy to know where to go, when to go, who is famous and who's worth of taking a picture of. And for them to be able to do their job properly, these kind of publications need to survive because they need to be paid the amount that a, a photo will still will still be paid for if it's published in print media. I recall Thomas Lewis talking about that that article that, that he wrote, and uh, he he spoke about how the the role of the paparazzo nowadays was actually much more of a storyteller. They had to understand the context of the picture they were trying to take before they took the picture. It never used to be that way. Just snap a picture of Jennifer Aniston without a makeup on. There you go. Rent paid. It's not that way anymore. My heart bleeds. Uh, that, does, <laughs> that does bring us to the end of today's show. Ben Ryland, Carlotta Ribello, and Chiara Ramella, thank you for joining us at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello, researched by Teresa Mavulli. Our studio manager was David Stevens. More music next at 1900. It's the menu with Marcus Hippie. There's more on the day's main stories, including more, obviously, from Christchurch on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns on Monday at 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Have a great weekend. Have a great weekend.